Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joelcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is good to be with you another Thursday evening, reflecting into this very rich topic of apologetics. Uh, my Thursday night sidekick is not with me tonight, Rob Sheridan, so I am flying solo. So the plan of attack tonight will be to take that last section from Dr. Scott Hahn's work, Reasons to Believe, on uh, the royal reasons to believe in God, and to really just downsize it into one night. Uh, so it will have us again taking up the theme of the kingdom of God, and we, we will place a particular emphasis on the importance of the meal, and always, and always we will do so in light of the unity of the two Testaments. Last week, we did talk about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of David as a theme to the Gospel of Matthew. Well, we're going to continue to reflect upon that theme. We're going to continue to give inquiry into this very rich topic of the kingdom of God. Remember the words of John the Baptist, Repent and believe, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe, the kingdom of God is at hand. So certainly it is worth our while to really get underneath what this kingdom of God is all about. It was uh, the 19th century theologian Alfred Loisy who once said, Jesus proclaimed the kingdom, what came was the church. Right? He was not the only one vexed by this problem. When it comes to the kingdom of God, there is indeed often a gap between believers' expectations and the Lord's fulfillment. You know, consider the profound de dejection of the disciples after our Lord's death. Go to Luke chapter 24, verse 21. What did they say? But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. They had expected their redemption to come with a military reconquest or with a miraculous intervention from heaven. They did not expect redemption to entail suffering, death, and apparent failure. When they prayed for a kingdom, they certainly didn't expect the church, yet that's what they got. Because indeed it was the church that would be set up to reunify the 12 tribes of Israel. Remember what we talked about last week as it relates to the church. You know, we saw in Matthew 16 that Christ said to Peter, what? You are Petros, rock, Kepha, and on this rock I will build my church. He is the leader of the 12 apostles. And symbolically, those 12 apostles reunify the 12 tribes of Israel. And those 12 apostles are the foundation stones to the apostolic church. The church that Christ came to establish. That his active lordship would be established in through time, through his church. Now, there are clues from particularly the Gospel of Luke 
that point to what this kingdom is all about. As I noted off the top, this kingdom that would have the meal at its center. So why don't we start in the Gospel of Luke and go to a parable we all know, the parable of the prodigal son. Now, the parable of the prodigal son certainly reveals the boundless mercy of God. And this is what we often think about when we reflect into the parable of the prodigal son. But it points to something else. At another level, the parable narrates the exile and eventual homecoming of historical Israel. After the reign of King Solomon, Israel what? Remember what we've talked about. They split into two kingdoms, becoming like two brothers living side by side, one in the north and one in the south. In the north was Israel, and the south was Judah, Judah and Benjamin to be exact. By the 8th century BC, the Assyrians had carried off the northern tribes of Israel into a far country where they forsake God and worshipped idols. In the new covenant, my friends, God welcomes home his exiled son by lavishing him with mercy and restoring him to full sonship. This is especially brought out in the great prophecy of Jeremiah in chapter 31, where Ephraim, northern Israel, after a period of exile and disgrace, repents of his sin, is ashamed of his wrongdoing, and turns to God for mercy. It is important to remember that in the Genesis narrative, Ephraim was the nephew of Judah and the youngest brother in the tribal family of Israel. Why is this all important? Because what you have being narrated on another level is how the 12 apostles represent the reunification of the 12 tribes. The distinction to be made, though, is that it is no longer just a national covenant but an international covenant. Remember what the word Catholic means. Catholique, universal, cosmic, whole and entire. When we use the phrase Catholic Church, what we intend to mean, my friends, simply is the church that was established by way of a universal covenant. And its signs are the waters of baptism and the blood of the Eucharist you can begin to see the importance of the meal at the heart of this reunification. This is why when the father sees his son, he runs to him in the parable. And what does he do? Well, go to the verses. In chapter 15, verse 20 of the Gospel of Luke, the father embraces him, literally fell upon his neck. The actions of the father recall the mercy shown to Jacob all the way back in Genesis 33 and the joys of family reunion in the patriarchal narratives. Luke wants us to see that just as the father runs to the prodigal son and embraces him, so does God the father run to the Gentile world and embrace them. And what else do these verses tell us? Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and make merry. Brothers and sisters, the robe and ring, symbols of honor and authority, the shoes, 
household slaves normally went barefoot. The father refuses this for his son, restoring him instead to full family membership. And how about that last verse, and bring the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and make merry. What Luke wants us to see on a deeper level is that Christ has come to restore man, all of man, universally speaking, to full family membership. So we start off with this parable because I do think it gets us thinking about the importance of a meal, right? If you were to go back into the Gospel of Luke, you see some striking features shoot forth. Luke, more than any other evangelist, associates the imagery of kingdom with table fellowship. You can identify 10 separate meals in all of Luke, all of which may be viewed as foretastes of the Messiah's banquet foretold by the Old Testament prophets. If you were to go into Isaiah chapter 25, Zechariah chapter 8, this is what you find. And certainly, this is particularly evident in the meals hosted by the Messiah himself. Luke chapter 9, verse 10, verses 10 to 17, the feeding of the 5,000. The Last Supper, chapter 22, and of course, the meal at Emmaus. In those three meals in the Gospel of Luke, and in them alone, as Dr. Scott Hahn notes, is bread said to be broken. The same expression that would be used all throughout the book of Acts. In sharing meals, Jesus was acting like his royal ancestor. Okay, this is what it's about. David extended covenant loyalty through royal table fellowship. And this certainly would have been well understood by the audiences of uh, the first evangelists. I want to now go to Luke 22, verse 20, the language of new covenant. In Luke's gospel, Jesus refers to the Eucharistic cup as the new covenant in my blood. He's evoking Moses' words at Exodus, behold the blood of the covenant. But he is combining it with Jeremiah's much later oracle of God's promise. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. The new covenant of Jeremiah was to be unlike the broken covenant at Sinai. The prophet made it clear that the new covenant would involve a new level of intimacy with God, plus the reunification of the divided kingdom and the restoration of the house of David and the covenant of David. That's very important. With these covenantal associations, Jesus marks the meal at the Last Supper as a covenant renewal meal. Just as the Passover was the covenant renewal meal of God's covenant with Moses, so is Christ's meal renewing and restoring. When Christians take the Eucharistic cup, they reaffirm their place within the covenant, the renewed and transformed Davidic covenant. My friends, let us be clear. Again, when we talk about covenant, we're talking about more than just an exchange of things, but an exchange of persons. Not this is yours and this is mine, 
but I am yours and you are mine. What our Lord wants us to see, that the signpost of familial unity in the restored kingdom of David, in the restored kingdom of God, is indeed the Eucharistic meal. And within this renewed kingdom, Jesus will share his authority. But not before he corrects the disciples' misguided notions of kingship and power, right? What does he tell them? I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom. Now, what's interesting here is the verb translated as a sign does not quite capture the essence of the Greek. The original word in the Greek means literally to make a covenant. A more precise translation of this sentence then would be, I covenant to you a kingdom as my father covenanted one to me that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Brothers and sisters, don't you see it? The words that our Lord give us and those words of the institution are profoundly important for us to gain a deeper appreciation of the relationship between kingdom and the Eucharist. Because indeed, He came to establish the kingdom of David anew, the kingdom of God anew, and he does so by giving it that deeper sacramental dimension. You know, the clarification of that verb may seem like a small change, but it really adds an astonishing element to an already remarkable list of Davidic privileges that Jesus is passing on to his apostles. The thrones, the tribes, the father-son relationship, the banquet at king's table, and now this extraordinary covenant. The meaning of Luke chapter 22, verse 29, becomes clear. Jesus is the son of David, the legal heir to David's covenant and throne. God has covenanted to him a kingdom. Now Jesus through the new covenant in his blood, is covenanting to the disciples that same kingdom. Again, this is not the promise of a conferral, but the declaration of a conferral. Something not in the future tense, but in the present tense. And it is within this context of the Davidic covenant that we can begin to appreciate more what the kingdom of God is all about. You know, It was Origen who looked at the kingdom of God in different dimensions. And actually, it's uh, Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI in his first volume of Jesus of Nazareth who takes us up, clearly aware of the importance of the relationship between the kingdom of God and table fellowship, the kingdom of God and the Eucharist, the kingdom of God and the meal. Okay, Pope Benedict reflects upon the first dimension of the kingdom of God in light of origin. And he reflects on how this first dimension is Christological, that the kingdom is not a thing. It is not a geographical dominion like worldly kingdoms. It is a person. It is he. On this interpretation, Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI notes that the term kingdom of God is itself a veiled Christology. By the way in which he speaks of the kingdom of God, Jesus leads men to realize the overwhelming fact that in him, God himself is present among them, that he is God's presence. 
How rich is that when you put this into the context of the kingdom of God being tied to the Eucharist, right? If the kingdom of God is about the Eucharist, of course it is Christological. Now, according to Origen, there is a second way of looking at the significance of the kingdom of God, which we could call the idealistic or mystical interpretation. Benedict XVI says that it sees man's interiority as the essential location of the kingdom of God. In his treatise on prayer, that is Origen's, he says that those who pray for the kingdom of God pray without any doubt for the kingdom of God that they contain in themselves, and they pray that this kingdom might bear fruit and attain its fullness. For in every holy man it is God who reigns, exercises dominion. So if we want God to reign in us, his kingdom to be in us, then sin must not allowed in any way to reign in our mortal body. Once again, this more mystical interpretation of the kingdom of God, this interpretation of the kingdom of God that is about prayer, makes a whole lot of sense in light of the Eucharist. Because it is this profound, mystical union, nuptial union between us and our Lord. Wow. That being said, in the third dimension of kingdom of God, we would be best served to go to one St. Augustine, who puts it well, the church is already now the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of heaven. A modern theologian echoing him says, the kingdom is already on earth and the church is already in heaven. To abandon the equal value of church and kingdom would mean overlooking this important revelation. In other words, we can speak to the kingdom of God in this third dimension, in its ecclesial dimension, as a kind of uh, active lordship. What is meant is not an imminent or yet-to-be-established kingdom, but God's actual sovereignty over the world, which is becoming an event in history in a new way. When Jesus speaks of the kingdom of God, he is quite simply proclaiming God and proclaiming him to be the living God, who is able to act concretely in the world and in history and is even now so acting. So as Pope Benedict XVI notes, he is telling us God exists and God is really who he says he is, God. We then see within the context of this more ecclesial dimension, which can be best understood once again in light of the Eucharist as God's divine lordship, God's dominion over the world and over history, transcending each and every moment and reaching beyond the whole of history. Pope Benedict XVI says that its inner dynamism carries history beyond itself, and yet it is at the same time something belonging absolutely to the present. This is the stuff of liturgy. What he's saying to us is, I've come to covenant you a kingdom. I've come to establish a kingdom here on earth that has as its center a meal. I assign to you a covenant, a kingdom covenant, one that will have us feasting for all eternity. <clears throat> As we talk about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven being tied to the Eucharistic meal, and certainly the kingdom of God being Christological, mystical, and ecclesial, in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13, we are given a number of kingdom of heaven parables 
And they really point to a deeper truth regarding the kingdom of God. And that is the restored kingdom will manifest itself in unexpected forms that will not be recognized by many. It will not be characterized by royal pomp, military conquest, political power, and economic wealth. This is, in fact, what we see in uh, the exchange between Pilate and our Lord in John 18, huh? Amid Pilate's interrogation, our Lord put it in these terms. My kingship is not of this world. If my kingship were of this world, my servants would fight that I might not be handed over the Jews. But my kingship is not from the world. Now, Jesus did not mean that his kingdom is not in this world, just that his kingdom does not derive its royal authority from this world. That is to say, from this world's swords or armies or majority votes or political parties. Essentially, our Lord derives his royal authority from his heavenly Father. And he discloses himself in unexpected ways. If you were to go to the kingdom of heaven parables themselves, when we talk about a parable, what do we intend to mean? A parable, literally speaking, is a spoken or literary comparison between two things for illustration. The word is found numerous times in the Synoptic Gospels for short stories where typically our Lord uses familiar images and word pictures to illustrate a truth or challenge a common outlook on life and religion. It's fascinating, you know, the term is also found in the Old Testament, where it frequently translates the Hebrew word mishal, a term for literary forms such as proverbs, riddles, and allegory. So this is what our Lord is employing. Jesus uses parables, in particular, kingdom of God parables in the New Testament for two purposes to reveal and at the same time conceal divine mystery. What do we mean by that? Parables invite the humble to reach behind the images and lay hold of God's truth. Parables sketch out earthly scenarios that reveal heavenly mysteries. Our Lord uses parables because he wishes to evangelize the imagination. You have heard me say before on this radio program, there is of great value to teaching that Jesus Christ taught. Why? Because of the way in which he uses images and earthly scenarios to evangelize the imagination. It's interesting. I said to reveal and conceal, because parables also obstruct the proud and conceal divine mystery from the unworthy. So, they have it a second, albeit negative, function, as they become spoken judgments on the faithless. So, why don't we go to a couple of Kingdom of Heaven parables to really get at the heart of, of what these parables are after? because it really draws us back to the aforementioned topics of the kingdom of God being tied to a meal and the kingdom of God being Christological, mystical, and ecclesial. 
So, it is in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13, where we get the kingdom of heaven parables. And in these parables, indeed, we have an arrangement of parables that highlight the centrality of being hidden in Christ. Effectively, the parabolic discourse focuses in on the exponential power of being small for the sake of the building up of the kingdom of God, right? The building up of the kingdom of heaven. How about the parable of the mustard seed? The parable of the mustard seed addresses the need to be not only small as it is the smallest of all the seeds, but to be less than small, tiny. I mean, consider that the grain of the mustard seed is only a fraction of the mustard seed itself. Once again, the many paradoxes of our faith come into view. And in this case, Christian greatness comes from great littleness. It has been said, that the final growth of the mustard shrub growing alongside the Sea of Galilee can reach as high as 12 feet. The final growth of the mustard seed is, uh, we can say, disproportionate to its original size, right? It is this very point that our Lord wishes to highlight. Like that of the church herself, which started with the 12, the kingdom of God here on earth will continue to expand so as, as long as we, the people of God, Remain in that great virtue of littleness, humility. Christ teaches that the highest and most sublime aspects of the kingdom of God dwell in that overarching virtue of humility. How about the parable of the leaven? Another image that God uses to provoke mind and heart. In that one verse, what do we have? The kingdom of heaven is like leaven with which a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. In just one verse, Christ needles away at one of the central motifs of the parabolic discourse. Again, fruitfulness by way of hiddenness. In this exacting parable, the woman hides the leaven until it was undetected. Only until the agent of leaven penetrated deep within would the dough begin to wholly envelop the leaven to have it gradually disappear. Here we ought to be reminded of the words of the Baptist back in John 3 verse 30, I must decrease that you must increase. The process taking place here is one of reduction. One thing shrieking that another might grow. We are the leaven in Christ is the dough. The parable of the leaven has a unique tie, like that of the parable of the mustard seed, to best understand the spirituality that lies at the heart of what we have been talking about tonight. We talk about the Eucharist and its ties to the kingdom of God, the kingdom of David, and the kingdom of heaven, not to use some fancy theological language. No, We talk about it because it gets to the heart of the spirituality that we are to embody. The deeper we go in our Eucharistic faith, the more we begin to better understand the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the leaven. Those three dimensions of the kingdom of God, Christological, mystical, and ecclesial, are all about going deeper in our faith are all about going deeper into the mystery that lies underneath 
the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the leaven, that in the end, less is more. And let us say with the Baptist, I must decrease because he must increase. Amen. Let us close in prayer. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth. Heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 6.30 p.m. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.